think we're going to start in Ephesians today. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I've briefly written already, by which you read, you may understand by my knowledge, in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages have not made known to the sons of man, it has been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the grace of God, given to me the effective working of his power. So Paul is saying here that the Gentiles are welcome into Christ, into God, which is conflicting with what's being taught by other people, that the Gentiles are second class. In other words, the Judaizers, this you'll find in Scripture, it's amazing how the law likes to come in behind grace and begin to try to take lead. You know, do you ever have someone who was a boss at work or someone who was a, a principal at a teacher, the, the main person who lost their job and became not the main person but didn't know it <laughs> or didn't act like it? They came around still bossing you around and and or maybe you got promoted above someone who you used, to, you used to be under, and then you got to tell them what to do, and they had a hard time accepting that. You know, who are you to tell me what to do? Well, I'm your new boss. <laughs> well, this is kind of what happened, where the Israelites, the Jewish people, had for thousands of years been God's chosen people. But when Jesus came, they have to find God through Jesus the same way that everyone else does. In other words, when they stand before God, they won't be able to use their heritage, their lineage, as the reason why they're God's chosen people. God will say, well, you're no longer my chosen people. My chosen people are those who believe in Christ. Let's go over to Galatians chapter 3. I want to paint a picture today that as we follow God, oh, I think the further I go into this relationship with God, the more I realize how much I lived under false understanding before I spent time with the Holy Spirit. It's confusing sometimes, or can seem conflicting sometimes, when you're praying in the Holy Ghost, and somewhere over here you start to want to let go of something that you used to think was really precious where the Holy Ghost begins to dismantle wrong thinking, dismantle wrong beliefs, and begin to lead you down a path of singular thinking. And when you've invested years into something, thinking it was you're building something for God, and he says, yeah, I want you to let that die. Like, wait wait a minute. I built this for you. And he'll say, that's the problem. You built it for me. I didn't build it. And you have to let it die. Maybe you know something about what I'm talking about. Maybe it's a, a direction, or maybe it's a, a relationship, or maybe it's a, a ministry concept. 
I'm finding more and more that God is very singular in his purpose for me and for us. Which means that you're not going to fit in with other people. They'll have a hard time understanding your thinking when you don't think like they think. Over here in Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, verse 1, Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So the Judaizers, the best I can describe it, are men who believed that their Jewish heritage, being born as a son of Abraham in the lineage, they could take their paperwork. If they sign up for what's it called, Ancestry.com, where they check your blood and find your DNA, they can trace their DNA all the way back to Abraham. And they can prove it to you. I am a son, a grandson, a great-great-great-great-grandson of Abraham. And they believe that gave them special place in God's eyes. And for a couple thousand years, it did. But once Jesus showed up, they had to come through Jesus the same way the whole world did. Well, they didn't like that. All of a sudden, being born in a Jewish family did not give you special privileges with God. And many of them didn't like that. And they went to the Old Covenant, and the Old Covenant was pointing to Jesus, and they thought it was their marching orders for the rest of eternity. But all it was was pointing them to Jesus. <laughs> I'm sending you a Savior first and then to the whole world. So Paul's addressing this because they came into his church that he started, and he built it by grace. So you think about it. <laughs> What's so appealing? Now, here's the contrast. One message is you're saved by grace, by the mercy of God. You have everything you need to do the work of God, to grow in God through praying in the Holy Ghost and through maturing in Him, and God has great things for you. It's all by His power, so let His power work through you. Yield over to Him. Or... I can add to that, you have to eat certain things and can't eat certain things. No pork, no shrimp. <laughs> but not just that, you have to yield over to feasts that they had to give over to feasts. The feasts, all the feasts pointed to Jesus. It was to help the Jews see that legally I'm bringing Jesus through you, but you must come through Jesus. And so these Christian Jews, they're born again, they accepted Christ, are now introducing the law. Now, when I say the law, I'm not talking about holiness. In American Christianity, the law means, which is in error, any standard you hold people up to. I expect all Christians to live holy. I expect them to act holy, to act in love. Oh, hey, brother, you're just putting me under the law. I can live how I want. I'm under grace. I don't have standards. I get to live freely, and God loves me, which is in error, which is not what the grace of God means. 
But a lot of American Christians, that's the way they understand the law as being any kind of standard. Holiness is, well, you're, I'm, you're trying to put me under the law. No, I'm trying to tell you what the fruit should be in your life if you're following God. So these Judaizers come in behind Paul when Paul's not around, which is normal. Whenever you've got a preacher come behind another preacher, secretly trying to tell you things, they're trying to get you to follow them instead of the preacher that God put you with, in a sense. And so they came when Paul wasn't there. So if I have a problem with Gary, if you like Gary more than you like me, then I want you to like me more than you like Gary. I'll come behind Gary when Gary's not there and begin to try to devalue him in your life so that you'll lift me up. Maybe you've had that happen to you. But I'm not talking about Gary here. I'm talking about Paul. (laughs) So they came behind Paul when Paul wasn't there and began to introduce to the Gentiles who were saved under grace. Paul did not teach one requirement of the Old Testament law for them to walk with God. They could eat what they wanted. They were free except to love their brother. And these guys come in with the law, not holiness. Paul already preached holiness to the Gentiles. They preached the law, which was, listen, you need to keep these feasts. You need to keep these dietary laws. You need to watch what you wear, dress a certain way. You need to practice these things. You need to, and eventually they got to where you need to be circumcised. So we'll accept that you can go to God like we are, the children of God. We'll accept that you can go to God through Christ. However, you're going to have to keep certain aspects of the Levitical law. Again, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about holiness. Paul already preached holiness as a fruit of the grace of God in your life. They were preaching legalism, things of the Jewish law that God gave to the Jews. The Jews had to carry this for, since Abraham, they carried these laws. But now after Jesus came, they weren't valid anymore. One of the law was circumcision. Now what kind of preacher are you? If you can go to a bunch of Gentiles, full-grown men, and talk them into desiring to be circumcised, You're a good preacher if you can do that. You probably take up good offerings too. But that's what was happening. And it was because the Gentiles were accepting that if I'm going to fulfill my walk with God, I have to be circumcised. Circumcision was given to Abraham and to his offspring as proof, as a a symbol of dedication to the law of God, to following God. Verse 5. Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law? Does he do it by hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted for him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Now this is a really powerful statement. Right here, Paul strips any ability for a Jewish man to claim that they are special in God's eyes. 
Right here, Paul strips every circumcised Jewish preacher as being able to claim that they have special access to God because of their lineage. And he says here, which is quite shocking actually, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So he's claiming that these Judaizers who can trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham are not sons of Abraham. That only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Talk about picking a fight. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Let's go over to Romans chapter 2. Oh, we'll start in verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? So here again, Paul is devaluing. Now, Paul is circumcised. He was raised a Pharisee. And he is devaluing circumcision as being a sign that you are a believer in God. It devalues it to be a sign that you are even a son of Abraham. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. So Paul is even saying that the Old Testament law, including the requirement to be circumcised for a Jew, all pointed to salvation. It was not special salvation. It pointed to salvation. Whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you have access to God through the circumcision of the heart, not the outward circumcision. So that shows that circumcision... God demanding that the Jews are circumcised was symbolic of and represented what salvation did in you. Circumcision is what happened to you when you were born again. That that snip of that foreskin represented the snip of the old nature that fell off of you and God replaced it with a new nature. And all this was given to the Jews to point to Jesus, not to replace Jesus. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So the circumcision that you went through was not a natural circumcision. It was a circumcision of the heart where the Holy Ghost clipped off that old nature and replaced it with the new nature. So Paul says that 
what makes you a son of Abraham is not your lineage. What makes you a Jew is not your lineage. What makes you a child of God and the chosen children of God is not your heritage. It is that you have accepted Jesus. Because even the Jews have to come through Jesus. Let's go over to chapter 4. Romans 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, verse 1, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was accounted for him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So if your relationship with God is built on works... And we have works in our world. And we're not Jewish. Most of us aren't anyway. But we have works in our world where we approach God trying to offer to him works to accept us. I started out my walk with God that way where my busyness for God, my amount of people that I witnessed to, the amount of people that I prayed for, they were proof to God that I was worthy of his love. But yet... I already had his love. I didn't need to earn his love. I already had his love. But I did not feel that way. I felt unworthy before God. And many believers are like this, where they're stuck in a circle, a treadmill, I call it. A treadmill works. When, they're, when they face an unanswered prayer, they go before God, and they say, God, I need a prayer. And the devil sits on their shoulder and said, he's not hearing you. You haven't done enough. Maybe if you did some more works, then he'll hear you and answer your prayer. And so you start walking faster on the treadmill, giving him more works. Maybe I, And we can sneak that into our world. I want to pray more. Good thing prayer produces something, even if you do it with the wrong motive, praying in the Holy Ghost. But it's not a work that you offer God. We don't offer God our hours of prayer. Saying, God, I I prayed this much, so now I'm worthy. The fruit of prayer is what brings the change. Not the time that you put in. What God's after with our prayer time is not just to sit there and babble for uh, 40 hours a week, or 20 hours a week, or an hour a week, whatever you're, you're at. He's not after you to say, these are my hours, now you can give me what I've been asking for. He's after the prayer itself changing you. The fruit of prayer is not an offering that you can give God to make yourself more valuable to him. The fruit of prayer is a change that happens in you as you yield over and submit to what prayer brings forward in you. You can say amen to that. That's good preaching now. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Verse 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as the debt. If you're going to work for anything you get from God, if you approach God trying to give him your worthiness through your works, it's not counted as grace. It's counted as a debt. So the works that you can try to do... Now just pause and let me, let me dismantle some of the American Christianity thinking. 
If you want to be blessed financially, what must you do? Give. Plant a seed. Now, there is truth that if you're faithful and a faithful steward, God will trust you with more. But we don't want to confuse that with works where, God, I gave this to you, so therefore you're going to give me back a hundredfold. You're going to give me back something. If you're given to God to be blessed, this, let's go back to this verse here. If you're giving to God financially, unless it's to Alan Taylor Ministries, of course not. <laughs> yeah, don't want, don't want to dishearten anyone in that area. <laughs> if you're giving to God with the intention, not of being a faithful steward, a faithful steward itself is described as someone who manages someone else's money. So if you have a business, let's say you have a business, and you have an accountant, and you find out that the accountant has been giving 20% of your business money. Now, the accountant usually isn't in the office. They usually have their own office, and they manage your money for you. You know, all churches know this, that the two people uh, that you struggle with the most in a church are the worship leaders and the people who manage the money. Those are where most trouble comes when you have a church. If you've never had a church, you may not know that, but that's the truth. (laughs) And it's because they are middlemen. Now, that's why we have mature people in those positions who have overcome themselves. But someone who is a worship leader stands on stage and leads us, introduces us to God through worship and brings us into worship with them. And so they can begin to take responsibility for what's happening. And so I've had struggle with many worship leaders over the years who, who got too, too high on themselves, thinking they're more important than what they were. They're to be servants of the church, not leaders in the church, if I can put it that way. I've had times where as an MC for conferences where I've had to, I've emceed, which means I've started a service and managed the service from the podium probably over a thousand times easily. And so that's a transition from the worship over to the speaker. And there's been times where I've tried to transition out of worship into the next part of the service and the worship leader thought I was wrong and would not transition over. Which, you know, there's supposed to be a partnership in this where I hear God and they hear God. That's what we want. And so there's been times where I've had to go manhandle the worship leader in front of thousands of people. Like one lady, she was a guest worship leader. Oh, you're telling stories now. I had one church where they promised to come and serve at the conference with nursery and kids' church and cooking food uh, for a whole week. And on the Sunday night before the conference, starting Monday, now we're in another city, and I won't say what city it was, but we're in another city, so I don't have access to anyone. This is a church we relied on for years. The pastor wife comes to me and says, oh, I just want you to know, I put up a sign-up sheet, and no one signed up. So we're not available this week, starting tomorrow. We're not available to do kids' church, nursery, ushering, or food. It was the worst conference ever ran. There's three of us. 
And so I had to manage all of that just with three of us. And so I was juggling MC and everything. I mean, you were talking about getting food, counting the offering, uh, selling books and tapes, running kids' church and nursery, MC in the service for three services a day for six days straight. I was grabbing old ladies I didn't know. <laughs> hey, would you watch the kids in nursery just for one? I lied just for one minute. Oh, okay, honey, I'll go. Do, okay, I'll come get you. And then I just leave them. What are they going to do? They can't abandon the nursery kids. One lady said, I want to, I want to cook a food for Brother Norval. I thought, oh, thank God. I've been sneaking pizza in and, and all kinds of things, trying to feed all these guest speakers and their family. I want to cook some food for Brother Norval. Oh, praise God. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm going to cook his favorite. So I was like, thank God. I didn't plan anything for that meal. She shows up with one plate. For Brother Norval, and I got 30 other people I got to feed. Like, oh man. <laughs> and so that church, though, had a night to do praise and worship, and they had 30 people show up to do praise and worship. Back then, I was a little more shy. Now, I probably would have been a little more mean. But I wanted to say what I didn't was, now I'm so glad you got 30 people on worship. But you, we only need five. So the other 25, let's go. You're in kids' church. You're in nursery. Get in there and cook, you know. Because it's easy to sign up for worship, but not for kids' church and nursery. But during these seasons of running these conferences, we'd have guests come and do worship. And I remember my favorite was a, she's just a little tiny praise and worship leader. And they were just killing it. It was like, boom, going, going, going. But they were going over their time. And it wasn't anything where there wasn't a move of God. It was just they were having a good time. And I went up to take the mic, and they're supposed to hand it over to me. Well, she didn't hand it over to me. She kept moving. And you can, I can, you can hear, if you listen to certain praise and worship, not in our church, <laughs> but there's people who do music. You can hear when they go up in a tone, they're bringing the crowd further up rather than bringing them down. And so like when I come up here to speak... Uh, Stacy and I have cues where I do something. She knows where I'm going, and she agrees, so she brings it quieter and then passes it over to me. But when they don't want to pass it over to you, they bring it faster and louder. <laughs> and and they, In other words, they make it difficult for you to take it from them. And so this little lady, and I've had a few of those experiences, and, but you still have to take it from them. So I had to go over and grab her mic out of her hand while she's singing. After I gave her like five chances, praise God, dun, 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 dun. She's, let's keep going, hallelujah. And you can hear it in the music if, if it goes up in, a, what's the, I don't know what the word is in music, where you go up a key maybe, where you can hear music, they go up a key, it kind of brings people up further. Instead of going down to bring them, bring them to a landing, you try to go higher. And it's okay if God's moving, but a lot of times it's not that God's moving, it's that they want to keep doing what they're doing. So I've had to wrestle with them. Took the mic right from her, stole it from her, like, give it to me. <laughs> but the two places you have troubles in church is when someone's a middleman, they feel responsible for something they're not supposed to be responsible for. So if you have a business and you grab your account paperwork and you find out you've been given 20% of your income to dog shelters and didn't realize you were helping rescue dogs at 20% of your income, you can go to the account and say, what's going on? Oh, I just felt like 
you had extra money, that it was okay for me to take that money and use it for this little puppy dogs that, that are dying, and starving. And I thought this would be a good cause for that money. It's like, uh, Mrs. Accountant, that's not your money. You don't get to decide what I do with it. You're supposed to simply jot down what I do with it and make sure I'm not breaking the law. You don't get to decide it's not your money. You're not part of the, the flow of the finance. You're not part of that decision making. An accountant's job is to be a steward of money. It's your money. I'll, I'll make sure I do with it exactly like you say I'll do with it. You understand that. You go to a, a restaurant. You order $50 worth of food for your family. You pay with your credit card. And then you get home and you're surprised to find out there's an extra $100 charge on your credit card. Because someone decided, hey, I got a credit card. I have access to their money. I'm going to go buy myself a TV set. And you think, wait a minute, I didn't authorize that. Just because you have access to my money when I give you the credit card is not permission to go run with it. Are you still with me? Well, that's being a steward. A steward is someone who manages someone else's stuff. But it's not their stuff. They're not to direct it, tell it what to do. They're simply supposed to do with it what you've asked them to do and keep account of it. That's an accountant. Well, you're a steward of God's money. That means that you don't even get to tell God where it's going. Oh, I bless you, God. I'm giving you an extra 10% of my income this month. Praise God. You're going to bless me abundantly. Did he tell you to do that? Or are you just doing that? Because if you're a steward, you have to know what the boss wants before you do anything with his money. Oh, I'm going to give to this person and that person. Being a steward means that you acknowledge that everything you have belongs to God. Your money, your time, your life. That you are a steward of those things and they belong to God. Let me say this again. I'm trying to dismantle some of our religion that's in our American Christianity. Because if you do a work for something you should have by grace, then it's counted to you as a debt. It's not a payment. You know, when you make a payment for something, you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a payment towards a house, and I'll own that house in so many years of making a faithful payment. What happens if you make a payment? And they said, I see here you, you sent in $850. Yes, sir, I sent that in as a payment. I'm sorry, but now you owe an extra $850 because it's counted to you as debt. You stop making payments pretty quick. Oh, I need to go deeper in this here. Verse 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. If you're working towards something, if you're working to earn something from God that he's already purchased with for you by the blood of Jesus, it's not counted as a payment towards the finished product. It's counted as a debt against the finished product. If you're believing God for a healing, if you're believing God for a saved loved one, if you're believing God for a change in your life, if you're believing God for finances, if you do something to try to earn it, it's not counted to you as a payment. It's counted to you as a debt. 
So if you went to your bank and you said, I'm giving my mortgage this month towards my mortgage. Here it is, my payment towards my mortgage. What's supposed to happen is your $800,000, $900,000 goes to, to the payment towards the finishing of paying it off. Right? That's how a mortgage works normally. But if you went and all of a sudden they said, oh, no, we changed our policy. That every payment that is given to us counts as a debt. So, unfortunately, the last three years, you've been adding to your debt. So your mortgage is actually a lot more than what you think it is. What would you do? Keep making mortgage payments? Well, that's what many Christians are doing today. They keep trying to make payments to something that's already been paid for. They're trying to earn through a work, a standing, an answer prayer that's already been purchased for by the blood of Jesus. And it's not counted for to you as a debt. This is why I have such a problem when someone says, if you're believing for a miracle, I want you to take that need, whatever it may be. Maybe you have a, a lost loved one who's not saved. Maybe you have a, a child that's sick. Maybe you have a a need financially. I want you to take that need and I want you to take a bunch of bills and wrap it around that need. And that turns that need into a seed. And then you have to plant that seed. So you want to plant it in good ground. So again, Alan Taylor Ministries is good ground. Plant that seed in my ministry and God will reward you. But what God's yelling over me as I preach that is, no, 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 no. I already gave it to you. Don't plant it, because then it's counted as a debt, not as a payment. You think you're earning favor with God, and actually you're walking away from the favor that God's already given to you. Verse 5, But to him who does not work, but believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness. So what God is after from you is not for you to do something to get something, but to work on believing that he is true, that his word is true, that he is enough. That you're his child, he loves you, and he wants to give to you for free. Well, not for for free to you, but it costs Jesus everything. Your miracle, your answer prayer. I had one friend of mine, she had a, a good friend. It was a pastor's wife who had cancer, and she passed away from cancer. And we don't ever judge anyone who's sick or fighting something. I've learned that. <laughs> we pray for them. This lady passed away, and my friend said to me, I don't get it. I don't understand it. She confessed. She believed. How? This is her words. Now, when you're upset, God's not touchy, so you don't need to defend God when someone's grieving. He can handle it. And she said, how mean is God that he wouldn't respond to her confession? He wouldn't answer her prayer when she was a pastor's wife of three kids and she described how the cancer bloated her and just it was a really horrible experience for this lady she loved god she was holy she was faithful and and my friend said and and i know people alan who are barely saved if even saved at all still drinking and smoking they come in the church and get healed why would god not heal her Again, that wasn't the time to defend God. God was not touchy. Later on, I got to say, now listen, when you're a pastor's wife and you're a good person and you 
give your life to God for many, many years, and you raise your kids right, and you give your time to God, and you're holy. When you approach God for a need, it's possible that you can use all those good things as works to prove that he should heal you. But here it says that that's counted as debt. I said, but when you're a, a dirty, rotten scoundrel, you come into church with a need, and you know you have nothing to offer God, then all you're doing is receiving what only he, you say, if God heals me, it's only because he's good, not because I got anything to offer him. And the danger is you can build your faith on the wrong foundation. You can take the works of faith and use them as works to say, God, I'm ready, give it to me. But essentially, every work of faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, confession, is not a work to offer God your time. It's not a work to offer God what you did. It is, we're looking for the fruit, because it says here in verse 5, but to him who does not work, but believes. So if I am believing for a miracle and it doesn't come to pass, where I work on is changing my believing, not trying to give God more than what he's already got by the blood of Jesus. Say amen if you're still with me. Just as David also described the blessing of man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from work. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does the blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that the righteousness might be imputed to them also. So what's important about this message today is understanding that we don't earn anything from God. We receive it. And that when we are praying and fasting and confessing, it's not a work to try to prove to God we're worthy. It's the fruit of those things. If I didn't have to pray in tongues, do you think I would spend the time praying in tongues? If I didn't have to pray in tongues, why do you pray in tongues? Oh, because I'm spiritual. No, I pray in tongues because I found out it's it's about all I got to make it work. (laughs) Why would you fast? Do you think, I mean, if I could, I would go to heaven, I'd be 480 pounds and happy if I can live a full life. I mean, let's go. Let's, Let's eat, drink, and be merry, you know? But why would you fast? Like, what on earth would make you want to fast? Well, because of what it produces in me. It produces a belief and a fruit and puts down my flesh. Why would you confess the word? Why would you speak the word out if you didn't have to? It's not to earn favor with God. It's to develop and grow in the understanding of what God has already done for you, who he already is. Because if God is true, then everything he promised is true. Is for you. Well, he promised healing, but you're not healed. 
Well, what do I do? There's a problem with my believing in what he said. So these verses I'm, I'm sharing today are really amazing to me because he is, Paul is saying here that the children of God are no longer the Jewish people. In other words, your lineage to Abraham gives you no credit when it comes to being a child of God. The Gentiles have as much right to God as the Jews. And, and unfortunately, some of that culture has spread into our Christianity today, where we, can, we want to pray for the Jewish nation, we want to pray for Israel, we want them blessed, but we, they have to come to Christ. There's actually some believers, Christians, who believe that they have, the Jews have a special covenant with God outside of Jesus. And that's going to send a lot of Jewish people to hell. When they stand before God and say, well, this preacher said, I have a special covenant with you, God. Yeah, I'm sorry, he was wrong. No, but he said it. Yeah, he's an idiot, but he... But God, I'm born of Abraham. Yeah, sorry. Doesn't do you any good. Verse 10. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but uncircumcised. And received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcised, but those also who walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir to the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to the grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Abraham called a savior, into his life that didn't exist yet. His calling of faith was, I believe there is a Savior. I say there is a Savior for me that's going to come and save me, even though he's not born yet. Even though my generation doesn't have a Savior, he will come. So he called those things that were not as though they were. And it was on that faith that gave God the ability to birth Jesus into this earth. Now, he also asked of Abraham to be the lineage of the Jewish people to bring Jesus through them. So what Paul is saying here to the Jews is that you're not a child of God. You're not God's chosen people. He's saying to the Jews, you are not a child of God because of your heritage, because of your natural lineage. In other words, God used Abraham to bring Jesus through. 
But he uses faith to travel over that period of time to bring Jesus into the earth. He used Abraham's lineage to legally birth Jesus into the earth. But he used Abraham's faith to bring Jesus to the earth. And so the only way to salvation is through faith in Christ, not through any works that you can do, not through your heritage at all. This is quite shocking to the Jews. Like, hey, my, my family for generations, for thousands of years, has followed the Levitical law. Do you understand how hard that is to carry, the Levitical law? 613 laws. Every part of your day was regulated. What you wore, what time you got up, what time you went to bed, what you did on certain days, you had to follow the law. And if you missed the law, you'd have to go take a sheep or a lamb and sacrifice it and do it again. Every part of your day, what you ate, what you wore, how you acted, your mannerisms, how you worship God, all that was regulated strictly and passed down from generation to generation, including being circumcised. Now, if you're circumcised on the eighth day, you're a little baby, you don't remember it. It's easy to preach. You should be circumcised to men who are, you know, 30 years old. Yeah, good luck. But there's such a strength of conviction in what they were preaching. They had talked the Gentile church, who never heard of this, into being circumcised. That's good preaching. I mean, that is, you are a world-class preacher if you can talk men into being circumcised. So what is enticing about the law? What's so enticing to a person who knows grace, who knows that it's given to me freely, the work that I do? There's a difference, of course, between work and works. How many would classify praying in tongues as work? You should if you're doing enough of it. Like, yeah, it's kind of work, you know, taking the time off and praying. How many would classify fasting as a work? As work? <laughs> It's like, yeah, it takes more work to push the fork away than it does to bring the fork in. You think it's less work, but it's more work. (laughs) Well, the difference between work, like sweating, versus works, with an S, like works. Works is something you try to offer God to get him to give you what he already purchased for you by the blood of Jesus. Work is okay, because I've talked to people in the year over the years, say, ah, you just need to pray in tongues. Oh, that's a work. That's works, brother. I'm free. I'm by the grace of God. Never heard, you ever have a showdown with those kind of people? I, oh, man. If not, you need to get out there more. Because they're out there all over the place. These aren't sinful Christians, people trying to live in sin. These are lazy Christians. Pastor Dave came and taught on fasting one time when we were at our Bible college in Tennessee. And you should have seen, we had one of our professors, very intellectual, came out after Pastor Dave left town and started to spread the idea, well, fasting isn't necessary. And he took some of the verses that Pastor Dave used and said, see, in this Bible, it's not in this Bible. The word fasting is left out. Jesus fasted, so I don't have to fast. That's just a work. It just works, Alan. Trying to get me to fast. You never had any of those arguments? I'm sure some of you have. They're confusing work and works. I'm not fasting to move God. I'm fasting to change myself. 
the hardest, toughest, meanest, ugliest person you'll ever face is sitting in the chair with you right now. It's much easier to go out and talk to you about your life than it is to sit by myself alone in the prayer closet. It's like, who's this ugly person looking at me? Well, that's Alan. Oh, he's horrible. So there is work involved, but it's not works. There is work involved to pray, but that's because we are trying to change ourselves. We're accepting that there's something greater for me that God has, but I have to transform into that. It's not automatic, because if it was automatic, you'd be there already. But it's available to every believer to walk in all that God has to them, not through works. Why is work so enticing? Because I think part of the reason is because our flesh will not accept God as a father. Our outward man will not accept God as a father who loves me. That's why when God tells you something and you start walking towards it, you feel peace on the inside, but fear on the outside. Have you ever, ever had that happen? Well, what's happening is your inward man, God's the father of your spirit man, says, yes, my father says we can do this. Let's go. He loves me. Your outward man says, oh, no, he's going to abandon us in the middle because I'm not good enough. Let me try to give him something so he can give it back to me because God's not the father of your flesh. He's the father of your spirit. So your outward man completely likes and appreciates works because it puts the power in his hand to how close you want to be from God or not. So there is a, a battle with many believers between trying to give God works versus trying to receive from God what he's already given to us. Let's go over to Colossians chapter 3. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden in Christ, in, with Christ in God. Set your mind on things above. That's so much more than just thinking about good things. That means that you set your life, your direction on God's will for your life. Not on your will for your life. Let's go over to chapter 2. Let's just go to verse 11 for time's sake. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Talking about being born again, that the old nature was circumcised off of you, clipped off of you, and you were given a new nature. Buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13, And you being dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's the old covenant was nailed to the cross, fulfilled by Jesus. Every legal law requirement of you to walk with God, receive from God, be born again of God, was fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus said, I've come 
not to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He fulfilled the Levitical law. He fulfilled the law, and it was nailed to the cross with him that no longer are those legal requirements required of you. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to go slaughter a lamb. I had one pastor say to me, well, I found this. It was really quite confusing. I found this law, and it was another preacher that brought it into his church. And he was telling me about it, and he let this guy preach it in his church. And I said, well, first of all, you're the pastor, because he's asking my opinion. I said, first, he's never asked me back, by the way, but he said, what do you think about this? I said, first of all, you're the pastor. You should not have some other man preach a message that you don't understand in your church. But what this guy preached was there was a tithe beyond the typical 10% tithe. And it's in Scripture. It's the truth. In the Scripture, there's an actual breakdown of tithes in the Old Covenant that's so much more than what we accept 10%. Like, that's what you're supposed to give under you know, American law. <laughs> but this teaching was there's another tithe where you give so much to the church, so much to the poor, and it broke it down. It's almost 30% total. And you also give so much to your priest. And so the teaching was... Give your tithe to the church, and then this tithe, they called it, you're supposed to give directly into the hands of the pastor. And I said, I said, you know, if you're going to follow the law, where do you stop? Are you going to put an altar on your church, in your front of your church, where you can sacrifice lambs? Where are you going to stop? And the reason he liked this and let it run in his church was because it had people slip him money. And I told him, I said, do you understand what that means? That was their full payment. If you follow this, then really you're not allowed to take a paycheck from the church. This is your paycheck, whatever they slip into your hands. Well, he wanted both, was what it was after. Having wiped out the handwriting requirements that was against us, which is contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink. And this is talking against the legal requirements of the Judaizers. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regardless of festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. So basically every law under the Old Testament was to show Jesus to bring you to Jesus, not to replace Jesus. And that's what works does. It tries to replace Jesus with your works. It's a very humbling walk with God when you have nothing to give to him. You have nothing to offer him that's going to get you anything. It's a very humbling thing to come to God and say, I have nothing. I have nothing but you. You're all I have. Without you, I'm going to die. I'm not going to make it. Works allows your flesh to feel empowered to walk in the presence of God. And your flesh should always be afraid of walking in the presence of God. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding to things which has not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. So that tells you where the logic for works comes from as a Christian, your natural mind. And not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body nursed and knit together by joints and ligaments grow with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ... 
from the basic principles of the world. Why, as you live in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. This is not talking about holiness. This is talking about the Levitical law trying to get you to manage through its regulations. So it's not saying, well, I'm allowed to touch things that the scripture says I'm allowed to touch. I'm allowed to taste. God made every herb in the ground, so I'm allowed to smoke marijuana. Uh, do not handle. I can handle alcohol now because uh, he says, don't judge me by what I take, touch, taste. Don't judge me. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about don't eat pork, don't eat shrimp, or I think strawberries is in there. All the Levitical rules which all concern uh, things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrine of man. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are no value against the indulgence of the flesh. If you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. We're on a path of revival, and I'm finding as we go deeper in this path for myself, as I go deeper on this road and longer down this road, that he's eliminating things that I thought were righteous, and he's having me get rid of them. Not talking about holiness, simply talking about things that I had made a law, I did not know I made a law. Things that I had made an offering to God that he didn't want an offering. Your prayer time is not an offering to God. It's the fruit of the prayer that we're after. Our fasting is not, God, I fasted this much. I was at a church preaching, and the pastor said, we had a lot of healings in those services, and he said, I have a brother here on the front row that needs a miracle. And he had, I think, cancer or something. And he said, will you pray for him? And then from the microphone, he said, now, don't you believe, Alan, that God's going to heal him? I said, yeah, I believe it. He said, because he's a good man. He's been faithful to the church for years. He's a faithful giver. He's a servant. I know that God's going to heal him. And I had to correct him from the podium. I said, I believe God's going to heal him, but not because of any of those things, but because of what Jesus did. So anytime you hear someone testify about works that they did to get God to do something, that's a sign that that's not correct. I did this, so God did that. I gave and God gave me back. There's a difference between being a steward and then being in control. We'll see you at 10 o'clock. God bless you.